makes me like, right? I mean, what an epic, what an epic role in Among Lions. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next uh, couple of weeks. And we're going to look at the book of Daniel. And you know Daniel's story in Daniel and the Lion's Den. And, and we'll take a look at that, how he was able to stand strong in the midst of that. Another story you probably already know from the book of Daniel is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three boys who were in the fiery furnace. Maybe if you're a little bit younger, you remember them of Rack, Shack, and Benny from VeggieTales days. But, but those are the stories. Those are these epic stories about God moving in the life of Israel of his chosen people during a time where it seemed like they were kind of kind of cast aside. And now they were trying to understand how do we live out this, this life God's given us as followers when we're in a different culture, when we're living in a very different place than we used to be. And we'll, what's what we'll talk about, get that conversation started today. But, but the notion of being out of place, being in a different culture. Uh, have you been there before? Maybe it's when you move to a new city, uh, maybe a new job or a new school, uh, a new neighborhood, and, and trying to get settled into a new place. It, there's a little bit of a shock to that, a little bit of a culture change, depending on where, where you came from and where, and where you've settled to. I, I grew up in Chicago and, and literally coming to Florida 20 years ago, I was like, whoa, culture shock. We love it here now. At first, not so much. It took us a little bit of time to get used to being here, right? That's why they called it Slow Cala. We noticed that when we first got here. Now we love slow callus. Slow it down a little bit more, right? But but we we realize that when we are we are put in a different place, a different setting, that there's some adjustments that have to be made. We would call it like a culture shock. One of the ways in which culture is very uh, clearly different from other cultures is through the food that people enjoy. And in different places, there are different dishes that are enjoyed in different ways. And, and that kind of can be a real clear indicator of a unique culture. And your being introduced to those foods could create culture shock, right? Something you maybe you've never had before that can really become difficult. So let me give you a couple of kind of cultural culinary insights here. If you grew up in Thailand, you would see this as a delicacy. These are, these are bamboo worms. And I'm told they taste like potato chips. I'm just going to go by whatever people tell me. I'm not really interested in knowing that. Back in 2013, locusts invaded Israel, and they began to see them as another dish that could be enjoyable. In fact, the saying in Israel at the time was, if you can't beat them, eat them. <laughs> huh. Now to make your skin crawl just a little bit more, in Cambodia, fried tarantulas are quite the deal. And just in case you're going to do this, what I was told, what I read is that you should fry them long enough for their legs to get really stiff. That way the abdomen isn't quite as runny. Okay, so it'll be maybe a little more... <laughs> Whoa, if you can get through that point. Maybe something a little less uh, kind of uh, appalling would be to take a look at what Buddy's favorite breakfast was even, right? So, so we understand that there can be some very significant differences in what you are used to, what you grew up with, what you're familiar with. And when you're exposed to something out of that normal realm, we would call it culture shock. Culture shock can be defined as when a person becomes aware of the differences or even the conflicts between their values and their customs and the values and customs of this, this new place that they're at, this new location that they've been settled into. I remember traveling overseas uh, in, uh, on a foreign mission trip. We went to Kazakhstan, which is part of the former Soviet Union. And we flew from here to Germany, which is a long flight in and of itself, further to go into Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is located really close to China, borders with China. 
And I remember as we were getting ready to kind of end that travel and get off the plane, I thought, oh, okay, we're getting ready to get off a plane. Well, I know what getting off a plane is like in America. You know, you get off a plane and they pull right up to the gate there. You kind of go down this walkway. And if you need to use the restroom, it's right there. If you want to get something to eat, it's available to you. Well, we weren't in America. <laughs> we were in Kazakhstan. And so the plane didn't pull up to any terminal. It just kind of stopped where it did. And a set of stairs were brought up. It was dark out, it was nighttime, and as we descended the stairs, we were met by growling German shepherds and the Kazakhstan military standing with their weapons. It was a culture shock, and that was just the beginning of the culture shock we would experience when we were in Kazakhstan. You don't fit in. You're out of place. It, it's not what you're used to, and it's hard to settle in. And sometimes what we experience are some emotions that can be filled with, with anxiety or even anger, we, we, are, we are looking for some footing, some foundation. We just don't seem to find it. Think about the culture that we're in today in our country. Culture that's been very different, maybe in the way that we grew up. Culture certainly that is standing in some pretty significant contrast when it comes to the values that we have, the, the beliefs and customs we pursue as followers of Jesus. A culture that's filled with issues like politics and sexuality, gender identity, abortion, climate change, justice, gun control. I could go on and on and on. But what we have found is that we are, we are in now a culture that's very different than the culture of our heart, than the culture of our identification as followers of Jesus. That's where Daniel found himself. In a very different culture. In a very different place than he grew up in. Now trying to figure out how does, how does this come together? And the biggest question that I want us to consider this morning is this. How do I follow God in a godless culture? How do I stay true to what I believe as a follower of Jesus or the, the principles and, and the ways in which he's called me to live in the midst of a culture that is just is off the rails on so many, so many different ways? Well, let me give you a little more of the backstory uh, of Daniel himself. We go back first, though, to King David. As God was establishing his chosen people to be the people that he would then move into the promised land where they would be able to enjoy all God's goodness and blessing. And David is the one who leads people and they conquer the land. His son Solomon is the next king. And Israel enjoys incredible peace and prosperity during this season. But sadly, it doesn't last. As time goes on, the people fall further and further and further away from God to the point that the kingdom literally splits in two with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And as time would continue on after hundreds of years of them following their own plan instead of God's plan, God finally says, that's enough. He brings in the foreign armies to conquer the land and people are taken away to captivity. And that's where Daniel's story begins, is this time of captivity. But, but you have to think that the people of Israel wondered, like, how did we get here? When I, when I think back, if, if I was a good Jew of the day, when I think back of the history of my people and, and remember the stories of old and, and, and God parting the waters of the Red Sea and God taking down Jericho, when I remember, how, how, how did we get here? How do we fall so far away? There's a verse in Jeremiah that I believe gives us a little indicator of this. In Jeremiah 16, we read this. This is God speaking to his people. Stop at the crossroads, look around, ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Travel its path and you will find rest 
for your souls. God has laid out before Israel, here's the plan. Here's the place that you can go. But sadly, the response of the people is, no, that's not the road we want. How did they get there? Disobedience, rebellion, hardness of heart. God had laid the path and the plan before them. And hey, here's the way. If you'll walk in it, you'll have rest and peace for your souls. And the people said, no, we're going to kind of do things a little bit differently. And it led ultimately to their judgment and their captivity. Where did it go wrong? How did they get to where they were? Isn't that the question we have today? How did we get here? I mean, take a look around at what's happening in our nation and the culture that we're a part. How, how did we get here? When, when, did we, when did we like totally take our hands off the wheel and look how far it went? And, and didn't God say to us as well, follow the godly path and you'll find rest for your souls. And haven't we said, nah, I got, I got some other ideas of how to do this thing called life. So, so back to this question, how do I now live for God in the midst of this very godless culture. I want to point out a couple of things from the first chapter of Daniel of how he did that. And I believe it allows me to know how I can do that as well. So the first thing in order to follow God in a godless culture is to hold on to your true identity, to hold on to your true identity. So who are you? I mean, at the, at the core of your being, like, who are you? I think it's a question of a soul that searches for, for meaning and for purpose. But the answer to that question is profoundly important. Who are you at the very essence of who you are? Do you remember if you kind of rewind back a couple of years, maybe longer than that for some of us, to, the, like, to your teenage years, like middle school, high school, maybe if you went into college or a trade, right? Do, do you remember those years? And do you remember the challenge of like trying to figure out who you were? Did any of you struggle with that? Was that like, wow, that was a really difficult season of life. Maybe you're, you're kind of reliving it now through your children or your grandchildren. Those are tough ages. You're, you're trying to understand who you are and, and also like who you're becoming along the way. I remember my journey through that season of life and, and some pretty profound things took place. Um, one actually had to do um, like with fashion. So you may not be able to believe this. Actually, it's not too far of a stretch of an imagination. I grew up as like a pretty nerdy kid. I mean, I really, I didn't have glasses yet, but about everything else was there. I was a pretty nerdy kid. And, and, and the way I would dress was I, I dressed up, like even like to go to school. Like I, I had this fashion like epiphany in probably like my sophomore year of high school. I discovered blue jeans. It was that bad. <laughs> it really was. So, I mean, that, that's just kind of how I dress. And all of a sudden, wow, blue jeans. I, I think I'll incorporate that into my wardrobe. What a, what a profound change it would make. I remember some significant changes in life when it came to my morality as I was moving from high school into college, especially. I mean, I grew up um, high integrity, great moral kid, like right down the middle, alcohol, drugs, none of that was part of my world at all. And then I went to college. Anybody else? And then I went to college. Anybody else have that experience, right? And in fact, I can sum that up even better with one word, fraternity. <laughs> Suddenly I joined a fraternity. This, this kind of narrow, down the middle, straight-laced kid all of a sudden is now in a fraternity house in college. And it's like, wow, I didn't know, wow. What I can say is 
because of God's graciousness in my life, he kept me from being really, really stupid. Uh, even before I knew him personally, which is an amazing thing to me to think back on my journey with him. Even before I knew him as my personal savior, I see his hand of protection over me. And while alcohol was something I dealt with and had to work through in college, I'm so gracious, grateful, that drugs was never an issue and I never got caught up in a relationship that was inappropriate. And again, I give God the praise for that. But, but I was trying to understand who I am and, and what I was becoming and what did that look like. But for me, the most profound identity issue was becoming a follower of Jesus. So the beginning of my college career was joining a fraternity. The very next semester then, I became a follower of Christ. And, and I kind of wish those had happened opposite. I maybe would have never joined the fraternity. I'm not sure about that. But now my identity was found in Christ. And so this question in my mind, who am I? I, I know how to answer that. Who are you? What is your identity? And that's what our boys were beginning to be challenged with. You see, the king wanted them to come into this culture. The king wanted them to become part of this, this life in Babylon. In order to do that, there were some, some identity changes that mattered, that needed to take place. We read about that uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 3. We read about the way in which they got connected to the Babylonian culture. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and the other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. These verses give me a little insight into Daniel and his friends' identity of who they were. These were the kind of the cream of the crop of the nation of Israel. These were the young men who were the up-and-comers. At this point, they're probably only teenagers. And yet, they were identified as those who had the most potential. And so the king wants now to immerse them into the culture of Babylon through learning the language and the literature, through participating in the eating of the king's food. That was a way in which the king said, I want you to make them Babylonian. I want you to be able to see in them this culture of being Babylonian. See, culture is a way of identifying, right? A group of people, common values and beliefs and customs, maybe a similar language or the ways in which life is lived out. We, we, we see this, this commonality of people through identification of a culture. People belong to that culture. I work among here in Marion County, I work among a unique culture, a unique group of people, and they're the fire service. I had the privilege of serving as chaplain and engaging in the men and women of our fire service, providing them hope and comfort and some peace along the way. But there was definitely a unique culture. There's an identification that says they're firefighters. These people are hardworking, and at times they're hard-headed too. But they've got this incredible heart to care for and to serve their community along the way. So when I engage with this culture of firefighters, I don't, I don't wear this. I put on a uniform because I want to fit in with their culture and become identified with who they are. So I, I wear a uniform when I go to work. But what's interesting is that I don't serve just one department. I actually serve three departments. So depending on which department I'm going to spend time with, I make sure I wear the uniform that identifies me with that 
culture, with that specific department. Because while they're all firefighters, Marion County Fire Rescue is different than Ocala Fire Rescue, which is different than the village's Department of Public Safety. And so for me to be able to connect with a culture, I want the name on my shirt to match the name of the people that I'm with. I have some, there's some identification in the name. So one of the final things that the king needs to change in our boys is their name. And you might not think a lot about that, like, okay, change their name, but what would be the significance? Well, what about your name? Is your name significant? Is there like a story behind it? Is there a, a family history or, or are you named after a, a season and a, a place? Were you given the popular name of the year? I, I, I don't know, what, what, what's, what's your name? So for me, I was named very intentionally after my dad's dad and my mom's dad. My name is Joseph after my father's father and Anthony after my mother's father. We continue that tradition with our firstborn daughter, with our son. They're named after the, my parent first and then my wife's parent second. There's, there's a reason behind the name. And the names of the boys in our story here were given names by godly parents who knew that their identity would be connected to the one true God. And so we read about their names and what they mean. So we read about Daniel and his name means God is my judge. His friend was Hananiah, the Lord's beloved. Mishael, who is as God. And Azariah, the Lord is my help. Those were names given to them. That was their identification. And they were identified with the one true God. But the king's desire is to make them Babylonian. So he changes their names to these. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, means favored by Baal, or one of the gods. Hananiah, the Lord's beloved, becomes Shadrach, illumined by Rak, who is the sun god. Mishael, who is his god, becomes Meshach, belonging to Shak, not that guy. Azariah, the Lord is my help, Abednego, the servant of Nego. You see, the, the point is that in their name, there became an identifier. And if I can change their name, I could change how they were identified. You don't think it's that simple? Just changing your name would change your identity? Remember sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me? Were you hurt by some of those names though? Did some of those names stick? Did your identity get caught up in the things that people called you? Like loser, disappointment, people who would say you'll never amount to anything. Names mean something. And so for these boys, for their names to be changed, we might look at it and go like, well, what's the big deal? They just they changed their business card and they went on, no big deal. But it had a profound effect if that's what they were being called over and over and over again. Remember, the king wanted them to become Babylonian. What you believe about your name means everything. Culture is going to try to change your name. Culture wants to try to rewrite your story. So it's important that you know who you are. And according to the scriptures, you are loved in John 3. You are chosen in 1 Peter 2. You are ransomed in 1 Peter 1. According to Romans 8, you are adopted. Genesis 1 says you're made in his image. Ephesians 2 says you're a masterpiece. 1 Corinthians 5 says you are a new creation. And in 1 John 3, 1, the scripture says you are a child of God. That's who you are. 
That's your identity. And as culture tries to change and rewrite that, tries to indoctrinate you into this very different way of living, you need to remember who you are and know your true identity. The second thing that we find in Daniel's story is knowing where to draw the line. To realize that as we are involved with culture shock, we're finding ourselves in a culture where our beliefs and values don't line up with what's happening, that what we desire as a follower of Jesus isn't lining up with where the culture is going, and that at some point along the way, we have to say, that's it. I can't go any further. I have to draw the line. Now, Daniel grew up as a good Jew, and he knew that the Jews had been called to be a different people, that God wanted to use them in in an incredibly unique unique way. We go all the way back to um, Abraham's encounter with God back in Genesis 12. We read this. Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. And here's why. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. The Jews were called to be different, but we're called to be different as well. And in Philippians 2, we read this. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. We're called to be different. And sometimes being different means we draw the line and we take a stand. And that's what Daniel did in verse eight. Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. See, for Daniel, there was danger in the dining hall. The food that was being served to him would be contrary to the laws and customs that he had grown up with. There would be blood in the food, which was forbidden. These would be unclean animals that were offered to him, which he could not participate in. This would be foods that would have been sacrificed to foreign gods. It was going to be a problem. So Daniel drew the line. So where do we draw the line? Where do we say enough is enough? Sometimes it's clear, thus saith the Lord, and we know that it's a line we have to draw. Sometimes it's maybe not as clear. I mean, think about Daniel. Daniel's taken from his home and brought into captivity in Babylon. And we don't read that he like tries to escape or run away or he puts up a fight. We, we don't read that. Daniel's indoctrinated into the literature and language of Babylon and we don't see that he protests that. In fact, if anything, we'll see as the story continues, he's excelling in that. Daniel's name has changed. Probably didn't like it, but we don't see him putting up a fuss. But change the menu... <laughs> And Daniel's like, I'm out. This is where it ends. This is where it stops. Why would Daniel draw the line at food? What matters what's in the line when you go down the buffet? What does it matter? Why did he say that's it? And here's why. For Daniel, following all those laws and rules and regulations about diet and about food were so that he would be clean. And in being clean then, he would be able to have a communion relationship with God. That's why the Jews had so many rituals and ceremonies. It was all to deal with their uncleanness. And then in dealing with uncleanness, they could once again restore their connection to God. So when Daniel was offered with this food, what he was being tasked with, what he's being challenged with is to say, we want to separate you from God. And Daniel had to say, no, I can't do that. So where do we draw the line? 
Sometimes we think we should draw the line on some of those issues that I mentioned earlier. Gender equity, immigration, gun control. But isn't the line, isn't the line really the things that get in the way of our relationship with God? Daniel said, I'm okay with the name change. I'm okay with a new book to read. But you cannot keep me from my relationship with God. So doesn't the line more things like anger in our hearts, greed, pornography? See, for Daniel, the line was that which would compromise his ability to be in relationship with God, things that would make him unclean. And isn't that where we should draw the line as well? What if the greatest activism we engaged in was to actively pursue our relationship with God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? What if we got aggressive towards the things that are turning us away from God, the things that are getting in the way that we've put before him? What if that's where we found ourselves saying, that's a line I have to draw? See, we don't need a rally. We need a relationship with Jesus. We don't need some cause to believe in. We need Christ. Daniel said, those other things are not unimportant, but I'm not going to draw the line there. That's not a hill I'm going to die on. But begin to interfere with my relationship with God, and I can't stand for that. What have you allowed, what have I allowed to get in the way of my relationship with God? Daniel will tell me, that's where you've got to draw the line. That's where you have to say, enough is enough. And in doing so, I can live for God even in the midst of a godless culture. The final thing for us to learn from Daniel's story is to remember that God is sovereign. God is in control. That has not changed at all. See, Daniel had to be looking around like when they were taken into captivity, he had to be saying, like, where's God? Like, like, like what happened? Where did he go? Why has he left us? And as I watch the news and as I look around this culture that we're in today, part of me wants to know, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why did you leave? He has not left. And he is as much in control today as the supreme ruler over all creation as he's ever been. That has not changed. And here's where we see that in Daniel's story. If we go back to the very beginning, I skipped the first couple of verses of Daniel 1 on purpose. But look at how the story begins. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But look at how it happened. The Lord gave him the victory. The Lord let King Nebuchadnezzar win over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. Have you ever been tempted to say to God, did, did you hear what just happened? I mean, like, like they just came out with this on the news. God, did you, are you aware that this is what's going on right now? God, can, can, can you, did you, did you know this? Have you, ever, have you ever felt like you needed to inform God of something? God's in control. And because of that, I can have faith, not in my culture, but faith in him. Daniel realized God was the one who allowed this to happen. In fact, God was allowing it to happen as a means of bringing judgment upon his people. That's a whole different conversation 
God was allowing this to happen to his chosen ones, to be taken away from their homeland because they had been disobedient to him. They had failed to follow him. And he places them in Babylon for 70 years so the land of Israel can recover from the sin. But the story doesn't end there because God's sovereignty doesn't end there. The very last verse of chapter one in Daniel says, Daniel remained in royal service until the first year of the next king of King Cyrus. Daniel goes from being a teenager to being an old man now, and he's still an advisor to the king. A different king, but he's still there. And Daniel's story would continue, and so would the story of God. Because the next thing on God's plan was to send his people back home to bring the Jews back to the promised land. The 70 years of captivity, that wasn't where the story ended. God had a plan because it was his plan still getting worked out because God's sovereign. And the place we find ourselves in culture today isn't where the story ends because God is still in control. God is still sovereign. And while I look at the world and I'm overwhelmed and frustrated and confused and angered, God hasn't changed. He never has and never will. So what do we do in the midst of that? When we see things that appear to be out of control, but we know God is in control, I want you to remember this one thing. God didn't keep Daniel out of Babylon, but God kept Babylon out of Daniel. Daniel was still there in the midst of this, in the midst of this culture that seemed so out of control. But God protected him. God was with him. In fact, that's what Jesus said as he was praying to his father on our behalf. He said, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, that's you and me, but rather to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. My hope is in my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's not in the culture. And even fixing the culture doesn't change the fact that without God in our hearts, without a relationship with him through Jesus, we still have nothing. Even if the culture became all we might want it to be, it's still not where the story ends. God's sovereign. It allows me to know how to live in the midst of a godless culture. I can know who I am and nobody can take that away from me. I'm a child of God. And I have to realize the line I'm going to draw is that which would compromise my ability to continue my relationship with God. We have to begin to say no to the sin of the world. But there's one more thing and I'll close. Those people... You know what I'm talking about? Those people on the other side of the line, on the other side of the argument, on the other side of the debate, on the other side of the post, those people, you know what I know about them? Jesus died for them too. And I get it. There are times I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I believe Jesus, what you did was like amazing, incredible, overwhelming, but, but not for them. I mean, look at, look at them. Look how far off base they are. Look how far off track they are. Look how... Like defiantly, they're shaking their fist in your face. How could you ever reach someone like that? And then I remember how he ever reached someone like this. By loving 
by accepting, by wooing into his goodness and his love and his mercy. See, Jesus died for those people too. And God's called us to continue to make a difference in the world that we're a part of. How far did he have to go to get to your heart? What did it take for you to finally say yes? Not only that he's the God of the universe, but that you're going to make him the sovereign of your own life as well. But for some of you, you're still living the Jeremiah story, the verse I read toward the beginning of the message. God says, here's the way, and you're saying, no, I, I kind of got my own idea how to do this thing called life. Would you finally give that up? Would you submit yourself to the sovereign of the universe who loves you so much he allowed his son to die on a cross so you could come into relationship with him? How do you live for God in a godless culture? By knowing Jesus yourself and trusting him to lead and guide every step along the way. Let's pray together. If you've never started that relationship with God, you can begin that right where you are. I'm gonna pray something out loud. If this captures your heart, you can just pray this between you and God. Father, I trust you truly as the sovereign over all, the sovereign over my life. And Father, I ask you to forgive me of my sin, the sin that Jesus went to the cross to die for, and that you would give me new life, the life that he resurrected to live. And in doing so, Father, that I would follow you through this godless culture, shining your light along the way. Jesus, thank you for loving me and now living for me. Help me to live well for you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.